Those are two of my favorites. Ferris Lord Jesus, I think, is my favorite. If you listen to it in Florida on TV, you can put it on TV. So, We have a matter of urgency. That line in the song is true, many in mind. And we have a member of Tetelestai Phalanx, Chuck Dowdy. And Elaine has asked us to pray corporately for him. He's on the verge of an inevitable departure from this life to be with his Lord and Savior and Redeemer and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's on the far end of the death-shadowed valley, and we want to pray for him this morning and for Elaine also. And they have, I don't know if many of you know, but they actually moved here from California just to be face-to-face in this congregation and be with you. And spent 13 very glorious years with us and had to move back for health reasons and other reasons. And so we will begin today with a powerful, effective petition for Chuck. Father, we thank you for Chuck and Elaine who have stood shoulder to shoulder with us and shield to shield for many, many years. They've had the attitude of quiet professionals in the army of Christ. They are still here, seated at this table, though far away. We could say this for them, for they are in our hearts, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, 3b, in our hearts, both to die and to live together with you. We pray, Father, that your son, Jesus Christ, the light of Christ will shine to reveal to Chuck and Elaine today that the valley of the shadow of death is merely a shadow. And we pray that you'll take Elaine's hand with your right hand and Chuck's with your left hand and walk them through this valley together. Sustain her through this time and do it through the right hand of your power and strength. Sustain her, Father, and Allow Chuck to see, as he opens his eyes, the glory that he anticipated all these years. And we pray that you'll keep us mindful of them and for others in this body, in this phalanx, and outside it, who are in great need, or who are ill, or somehow shut in, but not shut out of the presence of God. So we commit them to you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. It's good to see you all here today. Reverend Gwen, I didn't get to meet you last time, but Pastor Brown spoke of you. Good to have you here. And Margie, Dollar Bill's wife's here. Someone to watch over him on earth. He's got someone in heaven, but man, does he need somebody to watch over him. (laughs) It's good to have you both. And I see a Floridian here, not just by the tan, but Matt Hutchinson. Give give them all a warm welcome and tell us that Matt Hutchinson's up from Florida. We go way back. We We all go way back to eternity past, actually, where the Lord had us in mind. But it's good to see each and every one of you. And Pam and I are delighted, and I know I can speak for her. We had one of the most remarkable times in Florida. I know it was rather protracted and extended by the providence of God, but it involved many manifestations of the Holy Spirit that were unexpected and remarkable. 
many remarkable turns of providence that could only be classed as miracles, and many things that happened down there. We have greetings from there from my three sisters, and God bless me with the best sisters that probably ever walked the earth, Sandy, Becky, and Teresa, and Teresa's husband, Jerry. They all send their love and their greetings. They're all been awakened to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We had some remarkable times that can only be classed as visitations of the Lord and in his word and some remarkable turns of providence that I can't even speak of yet. But there also we have greetings from our phalanx down in Florida, the Florida branch of the phalanx, Doc and Lynn Andrews. I call him Doc. His name is Jim. And they send their love. We had profitable time with them as always. And so does Frank Burns and Kathy. We had connection with them. They're down in Venice. And they send their love. And we had to meet Kathy's son, Jesse, a fine young man. And we had just a remarkable time. Also, be aware that as we go to Romans 8.18, and I hope we turn there today, Romans 8.18, I want to thank one of the reasons for this protracted stay was so that you would have the splendid array of the word that you had with the men that stood in this pulpit in my absence. Some of the messages were preaching. Some of them were phenomenon, phenomena. They were all magnificent developments. I heard every one of the messages, and I realized that that's one reason why I needed to stay away so that these messages could come forth, and they did with just the splendor and the glory of God. And for the attendance that you consistently manifested as a congregation, there's few joys that are greater than knowing that in my absence you were still receptive and enthusiastic about a good thing, that good thing being our Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate reality, the mercy and the omnipotence of God married together on our behalf. So thank you. Thank you all. Thanks to the deacons and the staff and everyone for keeping things on an even keel. And it was wonder. It was wonderful. It was. A, I just can't express enough thanks to God for it. So then, the message today will be called "The Coming Apocalypse of Universal Glory." The coming apocalypse of universal glory. And before we get started, there is a sheet out on the. Information table, I guess that's what we call it now, called the Agona in the Juncture of the Ages. This is a significant, my true yoke fellow, Pam, awakened me to this because I was pretty exhausted the last message when I was with you, or at least the last Sunday I was with you. It was on the Agona in the Juncture of the Ages. And I guess I didn't realize how much 40 years of ministry can take out of a guy, but uh, I was pretty much at the end there. And I didn't realize, so Pam awakened me to the significance of the message, so I actually had to listen to it, and I said, wow, that's pretty good. So in um, in this, the agona in the juncture of the ages, this is extremely significant for us to identify the time in which we are living, and the reason for the way things are, and the provision that we have in this upstepped 
clashing juncture of the ages. And so that leads us into and up to the passage we're going to today, in which we'll introduce a few messages on the life of hope, and beginning with Romans 8.18. So we've cleared the decks, and you might also be ready at Hebrews 9 and then Psalm 62, but that may or may not happen during the course of the message. From life in the agon, as it's called in the scriptures, that's A-G-O-N or A, A agona. The agon, agony is where we derive this, we derive our word agony from the agona. It means an arena of contention. It can mean either an athletic or gladiatorial arena, or it can mean a military theater of war. Depends on the metaphor you, you choose. But it's the agona, and it's in the clashing of two ages. The evil age has been invaded by two divine missions, and Christ died for our sins in order to deliver us from this present transient evil age, and that we may experience the life of the age to come, even now, even now, in some great and meaningful measure. Well, then we will do so completely. So from the life in the agon during the juncture of the eons, Paul moves to the life of hope, the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. In Romans 8.18, he says, for by my accounting, this word is an accounting term, and it means I'm banking on this fact. I'm banking on the fact, Paul the Apostle says, that the sufferings of the present time of crisis This is my translation. I'm expanding it slightly to give the sense that isn't found in usual English translations. For by my accounting, the sufferings of this present time of crisis, this crisis is an incompatible intersection of the eons or ages. These sufferings are not worthy of comparison. Please notice that. They are not worthy of comparison. The sufferings of this present clashing of the ages isn't on an equal balance scale with the glory that shall follow. The glory that shall follow is a weight that will throw those sufferings into nowhere as the peace of Christ reigns universally. By my accounting, the sufferings of the present time of crisis are not worthy of comparison with the glory that is imminently to be apocalypsed, revealed apocalyptically, That's the universal apocalypse of the glory of God's grace. And this word apocalypse is found in the Septuagint and Psalm 98 or Psalm 97 in the Septuagint, the glory of Messiah universally manifested, universally infused throughout all things and all times as was coming. Apocalypse 2, we could say, or in or even into us, that glory. Verse 19, for the creation. This means all of creation in toto, which is now much more immense than science has ever been able to estimate. And now because of not only telescopes on Earth, but telescopes that have been projected into space, science at least true scientists, men like Hugh Ross, have informed us very recently that now we can see 
the origination of creation by the creator, God. And this is something that I'm going to be turning to teach on cosmology as I take a dramatic turn in my teaching toward theology. In verse 19, for the creation eagerly awaits. Please notice that the creation is waiting. Do trees know they're waiting for this apocalypse of glory, this apocalypse of the sons of God, this revelation of you in Christ? Do trees know? Do mountains know? Do calves know? Do deer know? Do squirrels know those pesky creatures? Do they know who they're waiting for and what they're waiting for? I'll ask you this. Do unbelievers know what they're waiting for when they're waiting for something better, but don't name it. Do they know they're waiting for the apocalypse of the universal glory of God? They may not know it, but they are. They're seeking it in all the wrong places. Do believers know? Well, we don't know that either sometimes. For the creation eagerly awaits the apocalypse of the sons of God. That's the manifestation of God's eschatological Israel. For the creation was subjected to futility, frustration. And part of that means that it cannot will itself out of its dilemma of decay and slavery to decay and corruption. So the creation was subjected to futility. It was made void and without form, to use Genesis language. And then it says... Not willingly. It didn't say, well, I want to be, I want to have frustration and futility. I want to be, I want to be in a position of vanity and incapacity. So I have to look out of myself for my creator. Not willingly, it says, please notice that. But through the one who subjected it with the expectation, the one who subjected it is its creator, the creator of the cosmos, the creator of of the universe, subjected the universe with the expectation, or we could say hope, that the creation itself will be liberated from its slavery to decay into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The present time of crisis, therefore, in this passage is the clashing juncture of the ages, which forms an agon, an agona, in which the saints are contestants or soldiers, depending on whether the metaphor is athletic or gladiatorial on the one hand or military on the other. Take up and put on the full armor from God. This present time of crisis necessarily involves suffering. It has been given to us. That means as a grace gift given to us. By the God of all grace, not only to believe, please notice it is given to us to believe in Philippians 129. But also to suffer for Christ's sake. It is given to us to suffer for Christ's sake, Philippians 129. And that's why Peter, the apostle, toward the conclusion of 1 Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 10. Now, the God of all grace, what a wonderful title for our Lord, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. 
will personally restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. Notice this phrase, after you have suffered a little. It says, suffered a little. This suffering is put into perspective here by Paul. He does something similar in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more eternal, everlasting weight of glory. In other words, the light affliction of the present time is not in equal balance with the everlasting weight of the glory that's to follow. There isn't symmetry here. The search for symmetry has brought up terrible aberrations of doctrine, like the double outcome of judgment, some damned, some saved by some fiat of God. That is because of the insistence on symmetry. There isn't no symmetry in salvation. The weight of God's grace weighs a whole lot more than the weight of your sin. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much, much more. There's no equal balance here. And I've chosen after a hundred and some hours of studying Galatians not to teach Galatians. Not because it's not important, and I'll be bringing up many principles from Galatians, but in my absence from you, I studied probably the amount of a semester in seminary on Galatians from two remarkable scholarship, remarkable research. And when I got to the end, I hit the shock of realizing that it's not mine to teach. That was a situation that was dealt with and dealt with effectively. There's doctrine in there that we need to develop. But I want to take a turn to deal with the aberrations, that is the departures from true doctrine in our time and address them in the same way that Paul did, like an assault on a fortress of aberrations of doctrine, one of which is the so-called double outcome of judgment rather than the single outcome of salvific justification of the ungodly. And many other things will be addressed. So we'll be also dealing with cosmology, the creation itself, the origin of creation, because there is a... Obviously, a lot of people calling the universe ultimate reality, and they even use the universe, capital U, as their God, which is kind of strange because the universe is in slavery to corruption. So they worship a corrupt entity rather than the incorruptible creator. We'll be addressing that in cosmology. We'll also be addressing aberrations in eschatology and that damnable evil doctrine of an eternal hell for immortal souls which is arisen from a departure from truth, not from a loyalty to it. So we have to deal with stuff that's hitting us right now at this time. And we are living in a time cosmologically, literally in the time of the age of the universe. We are living in a time when we are on the cusp of this universal apocalypse like never before. Now our salvation is closer than we ever dreamed and far closer than when we first were evo- had faith evoked in us. And the church is very sleepy on this issue. The so-called church. The so-called church, which only now exists for itself rather than for the world for whom Christ died. So we have a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. But it will be done. 
and God will finish what he started. And so there is no symmetry or equal balance between the sufferings of this present juncture of the ages and the glory that's about to be revealed in the parousia or the coming the appearance of Jesus Christ. When Christ, who is our life, universally manifests himself and appears in glory. And when we appear with him, infused with glory. Colossians 3, 4. Now, during this juncture of the eons, we can say this. We died, and our life is hid with Christ in God. Again, there's no symmetry between the sufferings of this present crisis. There's no equal balance on the scale. And the glory that will be revealed when all suffering ceases and the peace that God made by the blood of Christ's cross reigns universally. Paul does not say that the sufferings compare or are in symmetry or equal balance with the glory that will follow. He says there is no comparison. There is no comparison. It is precisely the undue insistence on symmetry and equal balance that has caused scholars and theologians in the past and still in the present to come up with the aberrant, and that means abhorrent, doctrine of a double predestination leading to eternal damnation for some and eternal salvation of others. That is a damnable doctrine. That's what Peter would have called it in Second Peter 2, 1 and 2. One was elected to be rejected, and he was on the cross. One was elected to be elected and chosen and glorified, and he was in resurrection. And he was rejected for all in crucifixion, and he was elected for all and as all in his resurrection. The Lord Jesus Christ. Or have you not determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified? I have. Determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so soteriology or the study of salvation is an asymmetric study. It isn't an equal, well, you know, if there's the eternal heaven, there has to be an eternal hell. Yes, and Jesus Christ endured it for you. There's not symmetry or balance. It isn't us doing something and God rewarding us for good actions or even for belief. We'll be hitting that. That is, we're going to storm that castle because the power of the word is mighty for the destruction of the pulling down of high towers that have exalted themselves against the divine saving will of God and the objective knowledge of God. All of creation awaits this apocalyptic event because all of creation, that's what we call the universe is currently under subjection to frustration, not by its own will, but by the will of the creator. Hugh Ross, remember that name, H-U-G-H-R-O-S-S. Becky is my sister and my researcher in Florida. She found this guy for me. In fact, she might be listening. Say hi to Becky. Say hi, Becky, if you want. There, hi, Becky. Okay, see you're in church, Becky. You can't, you can't avoid it today. You're in church. 
Hugh Ross, in his very readable book, and I say readable because it's important with cosmology, it's entitled Creation and the Cosmos, How the Latest Scientific Discoveries Reveal God. Observe something about Romans 8, 20 and 21. Speaking of all of creation in its current state of slavery to decay, as it says. He, su- he said that this verse, these verses, supports the conclusion that the whole universe suffers from progressive decay. Ross goes on to write, Patty, is he related to you? You're smarter than he is. Though. He's got a PhD, but you've been here. So, Ross goes on to say, I think Patty told him to say this, so he's, he says, such ongoing slavery to decay describes well the second law of thermodynamics, the law of physics, that states that as time proceeds, the universe becomes progressively more disordered, decayed, and run down. Kind of sounds like history <laughs> recently. This idea belongs to the category of study called cosmology. This is me speaking now. Cosmology, very important study. Eschatology on one end, but cosmology on the other end. That's also called protology. The end is going to be the beginning when God rolls up this whole scroll of his plan. The end will be the beginning. Cosmology and protology, the beginning. Eschatology, the end. But eschatology becomes the beginning. In the end, God will be able to say, in Christ, I have made all things. I have made all things to live with the life-conquering death, the the death-conquering life, rather, of my son, Jesus Christ. We already, who were dead in sins, have been made alive with the life of Christ, made alive together with him. So we'll be discovering a doctrine called objective and subjective reconciliation. Objective reconciliation means that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not charging their sins to them. That's all are reconciled. Subjective reconciliation is when the Holy Spirit awakens faith and you receive it and come to know it yourself. That's why Paul said you have been reconciled, so be reconciled. And that's what's happening today. Evangelism awakens people to the fact that God has already reconciled them to himself in Christ's death, who became sin for us. And so that will be coming up as a doctrine too. And so the idea of this creation belongs to cosmology, which hopefully we'll study in upcoming teachings, where I tend to wax more and more theological with scriptural basis. Suffice it to say that the so-called Big Bang Theory, that started as a nickname from critics of it, that cosmology, however, has much to offer. And we'll see how this pans out in a study of biblical cosmology. And there are several models of this cosmology, one of which is richly theological and accords very well with the Bible, even though, of course, the Bible writers were way ahead of the PhDs in cosmology of our present time, very much ahead. Jeremiah, Job, the psalmists, Moses, all way ahead on this cosmology. So the argument for a personal creator has become very weighty of late. And there are many of today, as you hear it, I even heard it recently, a person wanted to buy a condo and they said, we're going to put it to the universe. And I thought, you'll never get this condo. And they didn't. But 
the universe. It's a lousy name for God. And if you've adopted that name, you're way off. I mean, you're way off. Okay. We say that to each other when we make slight mistakes in my family. My sisters and I say, you made a mistake. Man, you were way off. Even if we make a little tiny mistake. That's just one of our fun things. So then, we also say when we get our meal and sit down, if it's a buffet, we sit down before other people and we, got our, we go, I'm all set. And that's kind of like what Christians do. I'm all set. The world's going to hell, but I'm all set. You're going to hell, but I'm all set. I'm at the feast table. I'm all set. And that's one of the most miserable, we make fun of it, because it's one of the most miserable attitudes for a Christian to have. I'm secure. My family's secure. We're going to heaven. Our church is going to heaven. You're going to hell. Yay, yay. Jesus loves me, but not you. This I know. You know nothing. So then, Becky, try to control your laughter if you're listening. So then, they speak of the universe. They've been trained to speak of the universe with a capital U and consider the universe itself to be ultimate reality as if the universe controls providence. I wanted to say, why don't you put it to the Lord of the universe? You might be sitting in that condo today. So, those who acknowledge the universe as ultimate reality are serving a God, small g, who is subject to decay and frustration. Instead of the incorruptible God, the universe is a lousy substitute term or name for God. Don't buy it. I don't care who says it. Those who acknowledge the universe as ultimate reality, then, are serving corruption. Those who hold to a personal creator of the cosmos also have their failings, though. There's something they call creation science. And they want to make the earth 6,000 years old. They want to do a lot of other things, which isn't even scientific, nor is it biblical. So there's something called creation science today that's just as way off as the science that denies the creator. So that has to be fixed if we're going to have a true hope for what's coming. So those who hold to a personal creator also have their biases and failings which are not grounded in scripture, nor is it grounded in true science. And there is certainly an inferior and wrong-headed so-called creation science. That's what we're going to hit today. I don't have to convince you that you don't need to be circumcised, do I? That's Galatians. But I do have to convince people in the time we're living, and we have to insist on this. So... We're ill-advised to subscribe to some of the so-called creation science, which is just another fundamentalist wing of error. If God, not the universe, is willing, if God, not the universe, is willing, we will be learning much more about this subject because we live in a time when the actual initial creation of God can be seen. Oh, it was a big bang, all right. It was initiated by a creator who spread out the heavens like a garment, just like Hebrews says, just like Psalm 104 said, just like Job said, just like Genesis said, long before these PhDs caught up with it and the Hubble telescope and the the telescope that they have up in space that can actually see the origination of the universe. 
and measure the time of its age, 13.7 billion years, and a lot of other things. But it all, the truth of it magnifies God, to, and it's only now. I mean, the last couple of years this has come into focus. We're talking about, talk about being on the cusp of something. We're on the cusp of something, all right. Apocatastasis pantone, the restoration of all things, all things interconnected, the bringing together of all things in Christ, which is the mystery of God's will. So therefore, in my view, it's an urgency attached to the study, not only of eschatology, but also of cosmology or protology. Because in the end, the end will be the beginning. And God will say, in Christ, God created the heavens and the earth. The whole of the universe will be NRK in Christ. So, for our present purposes in Romans, we've arrived at the place where the universal horizon of reconciliation, redemption, and rectification, three R's, reconciliation, redemption, and rectification, the horizon is exhibited before us, all of creation and all of its times. This universal rectification or setting right of all things gone wrong in all of its times is grounded in the crucified Christ who in his passion and on the cross identified with the lamenting universe with his crying and strong tears, his strong crying and tears. He was identifying with the lamenting universe even now as the Holy Spirit groans along with the creation, along with us, groaning in anticipation of this apocalypse of the universal glory of God. And so, I cannot stray from the cross of Christ. I would, given my own will and decision, which is subject to vanity and futility on its own, but God will not let me stray from Christ and him crucified, raised, exalted, seated, coming in glory. I can't. Even the redemption and the liberation of the entire universe, immense beyond any past reckoning, is linked to it. Jürgen Moltmann, you say you quote him a lot. I sure do. Because of all theologians I've ever studied, he is an unabashed universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. Unabashed, unashamed, says it straight out and says maybe, instead of says, maybe this is true. He said this, and I cannot emphasize it. I'll quote it, I hope, a hundred more times before I cross that valley. The true Christian foundation for the hope of universal salvation is the theology of the cross. And the realistic consequence of the theology of the cross can only be the restoration of all things. That little theological statement says enough 
to take up 300 or 400 verses I can think of at the top of my head. That's why I'm not going to teach Galatians verse by verse. I'm going to teach theology with the hundreds and hundreds of verses that support these kinds of declarations. And that's the way we will storm the citadels of arrogance in our own time, bring down aberrations that have elevated itself against the grace and mercy of God and have said in so many words that God is not love. The weapons of our warfare are mighty in God's view to the pulling down of strongholds and the bringing to obedience of Christ every thought that may have strayed before. All human beings share the subjection to frustration with the creation. As part of the creation, God made it impossible for the creation to extract itself from decay and from slavery to decay by its own will. And listen carefully to this. He has made it impossible for humankind to save themselves by their own power, or listen to this one, because here's where the heart of the fortress that we're storming lives. This is where the dungeon lives, too. Also, impossible for man to extract himself, men and women to extract themselves from their state of slavery to decay by their own will. Thanks be to God that human salvation is not dependent on human decision. Listen to it. Thanks be to God that human salvation is not dependent on human decision. I made the decision. I'm all set to hell with you. I love Jesus. To hell with you and I love Jesus doesn't seem to jive very well. It doesn't really congeal too well. Well, thanks be to God that human salvation is not dependent on human decision, except for one human decision, the decision of the man Christ Jesus as the sole mediator between God and all of mankind. That means he made the decision for the salvation of all mankind, for all mankind. Can you back that up with scripture? I have been since 2009, but if you want me to spend several years with you today, you might miss your meal. Yes, and I know Arby's has two for one kilos now, or two for six dollars. Heroes, not gyros. That's Greek. Is my thought turning toward food? No. I've got all my food desires out of me. I had about five boxes of lemon Oreos when I was in Florida. But I also walked, and I marked it 118 miles and swam and did heavy hands. So I balanced it all out, see? Four boxes of Oreos, better walk 120 miles. Only walked 118. (laughs) So had to put some swimming in there and some other things. But anyways... All human beings share this subjection to frustration to insist that human beings are saved by their own will or own decision is to express not biblical faith. It's not biblical faith, but it's what Moltmann called a tremendous self-confidence. 
It's a tremendous self-confidence, which I would call arrogance. While I was away, I reread and no doubt will read again an exquisite chapter in Christian eschatology. The book just happened to be lying around and I didn't even remember it was there. By this elder statesman of theology, an unabashed proponent of universal salvation, Moltmann. The chapter is entitled The Restoration of All Things. It's worth getting the book just for that chapter. The book is called The Coming of God. In the course of that chapter, he storms the stronghold of the doctrine of the, quote, double outcome of judgment. And he assaults the sacred citadel of the human will as it stands like a tower over and against the divine, universally saving will. I've chosen with my own liberated human will, get that? I've chosen with my own liberated human will to quote a section that reveals the spearhead of this assault. And this and another quote that I might bring up Wednesday, because I'm going to stay with Romans 8 both times, show what, why I have taken a dramatic turn, another reason for staying in Florida. The last, the last week I came to this turn uh, to go toward theology. He, this is a quote from Moltmann. He says, this really brings the question, universalism or a double outcome of judgment, that debate, down to the relationship between divine and human decision. The doctrine of universal salvation is the expression of a boundless confidence in God. A boundless confidence in God. Not a tremendous self-confidence. A boundless confidence in God. A deep and abiding faith in God is what this brings about. It causes us to overflow with hope. It causes us to see the world through the lenses of God's love. It causes us to have a hope that's not a shame because the love of God is poured out in our hearts. It causes us to look at every human being, whatever state, whatever class, whatever race, whatever religion, as having been reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. And only needs to receive that reconciliation when awakened to faith. And that's what it means to be woke. A new term in vogue today, which I may hit in our communion service next Sunday. I don't know. I can't. Who knows? I said I was going to teach Galatians, but I kept saying maybe. Maybe not now. But he goes on to say the doctrine of universal salvation is the expression of a boundless confidence in God. What God wants to do, he can do and will do. I love that. You want simplicity? Be simple. Everything, your messages are complicated and layered. Be simple. Okay. What God wants to do, save all mankind and bring them to the knowledge of the truth. What God wants to do, not let any perish, he can do and will do. If he wants all human beings to be helped, he will ultimately help all human beings. The doctrine of the double outcome of judgment is the expression of a tremendous self-confidence on the part of human beings. If the decision, faith or disbelief, has eternal significance, then eternal destiny, salvation or damnation, lies in the hands of human beings. What will happen to people in eternity really does depend on their own behavior. Now, this has a whole lot to do with misunderstanding belief and unbelief in John's gospel and other places. We'll go there again. 
He goes on to say this. If that's true, then God's function is reduced to the offer of salvation in the gospel and to establishing acceptance or rejection at the judgment. Christ then becomes a person's savior only when the person has, quote, accepted him in faith. So it is the acceptance in faith which makes Christ the savior of that man or woman. But if this is so, do people not really save or damn themselves? The doctrine, and this is what the citadel that we're going to storm through theology, the doctrine of the double outcome of judgment is a relatively modern doctrine compared with the doctrine of universal salvation, which we know held sway for the first 900 years of church history, as it's called, and also in the 17 and 1800s, recovered in the 1900s in the 20th century, the 21st century is when the light's going to be turned fully on with this and is being turned. So awake, you sleepers, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Ephesians 5.14, you'll be woke. That's truly what it means to be woke. He goes on to say this. Listen carefully to this. The doctrine of the double outcome of judgment is a relatively modern doctrine compared with the doctrine of universal salvation. It fits, I put this in italics, it fits the modern age in which human beings believe that they are the measure of all things. And the center of the world. And that therefore everything depends on their decision. But all the creation, including all of humankind, was subject to futility with regard to decision. Not willingly, but by the will of the creator. This brings us around again to Romans 8, 20 to 21. Look at it. We'll, We'll go into the fourth and final gear here. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but through the one who subjected it with the expectation. God had an expectation. God had a hope, a realized hope, that the creation itself will be liberated. This is God's expectation, that the creation itself, that's in its totality. Read Revelation 5.13 if you don't understand it. Liberated from its slavery to decay into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So it was the will of God that the creation in its entirety, including the human part, and there is an interconnectedness of humanity with the rest of creation. He willed that all of creation, including the human part, be subject to futility. Genesis says void and without form. The universe is void and without form, as beautiful as it is, until God takes residence in it, and God is all in all, which is about to happen. The sun is about ready, having reigned all these years, to present those things that he's reigned over, all things, to the Father, so that God will be all in all. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight. That's even revealed through telescopes. Now, this passage presents a personification of all creation in a waiting mode. Waiting. Intense anticipation. The hope is from God, Psalm 62.5, and it is in God, not in the universe. As ultimate reality, 
You notice what I'm showing here. I'm showing the arrogance of showing the universe to be ultimate reality. And then the arrogance that comes a little closer home to the so-called church. The salvation is the result of a human decision. Rather than the divine salvific will. These are citadels. We're storming them. Will there be resistance? I don't know. Probably. There already is. There's some right in this room. I don't care. I'd rather be on the side of three well-known persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So then, our will is subject to futility. This hope is from God, not the universe as ultimate reality, or nor is this hope in humanity as the measure of all things. Our God is a saving God. Only God's will is efficacious. Only God's will is efficacious, and only his power is involved in the coming apocalypse of universal glory. You want to add your power to it? Well, less power to you. You cannot will it, nor can I, nor can the universe, only the Lord of the universe. There's a passage in Hebrews 9, 26 to 28, briefly. You don't have to turn there. It's not time. We don't have time. But it says that Christ, who appeared once for all in the juncture of the ages, to put away sin by his self-offering. And then in verse 28 of 929, or 9, Hebrews 9, it says, He will appear again without sin for salvation to those who wait for him. Now you say, those who wait for him are this little cluster of saints, this little remnant of people. Is it really? Here it says all creation's waiting for him. Your dog is waiting for him. They think they're waiting for the master to come home because they want some more kibbles and bits. Ultimately, all creation's waiting is waiting for the ultimate event of the parousia, the manifestation of the sons of God in glory, the manifestation, the apocalypse of the universal glory of God. So those who wait for him is, as Craig said, everybody and everything, everything, everything. In between those verses comes a little catch verse that hellists like to use. Just as once it's given to people once to die, and after that, the judgment. Actually, you know what that means? Thank you for that. To die is to be justified. No one living can be justified in God's eyes. So dying is in connection with the judgment of justification. If I died with Christ, who was justified in his death, then I was justified with Christ. And so, once to die means once to be justified, once to be justified. And he just, he brings up from the dead, as was brought in a message in this pulpit recently, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the, to the judgment of justification. Who do you think God is? You think he's got a dartboard? Okay, bang, oh, they're all going to hell, bang, oh, they're going to heaven. Chance, caprice, fate, fate, chance, and all the rest of it are subordinate to providence, and providence is subordinate to God's love. So is judgment. So is justice. 
So in between those two verses, 926 and 28, 927, the writer emphasized this once and for all by comparing it to the idea of human beings dying once and then the judgment, that is, of justification. So we died once and for all with Christ, and this was irrevocably accompanied by our judgment of justification. So who are those who are waiting for him? In Hebrews 9.28. For salvation. Without sin being the issue. He came once to become sin. So he comes again with salvation without sin. Being any issue at all. Who's waiting for him? If we say only those who believe. We leave out the whole of creation that's waiting. The real answer has to be that all are waiting for the parousia. Whether they know it or not. The little girl with the hope chest waiting for the right man to come along is really waiting for the parousia. She doesn't know it. She's waiting for a hope that that right man can't fulfill, that marriage can't fulfill, that sex can't fulfill, that opioids can't fulfill, that alcohol can't fulfill, that all kinds of human aberrations and human unities and institutions and psychiatry and all the rest of it cannot fulfill. They're waiting for the ultimate fulfiller. All creation is. They, don't, they may not know it. Obviously, creation personified doesn't know it's waiting for Jesus. But it's waiting for Jesus because God put that expectation. It's God's expectation, which will be realized. It's even God's dream. His dreams are reality. So in closing... The real answer has to be that all are waiting for the parousia, whether they know it or not, whether believing or unbelieving, whether human or non-human, whether dead or alive, whether asleep or awake. To cite Brian's message. So, the whole creation in all of its times is waiting for an event of glorious salvation, which God alone will bring about even as God alone brought about the universe in the first place. Where were you? That's what he said to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Did your will have anything to do with it? Did you decide, you know, who has been God's advisor? Who's around to advise him? I think you ought to create the universe. I will that you create the universe. Oh, okay. No. Romans 4.17 says he's the one that brings about, calls into existence the things that don't exist and brings to life from the dead. The whole creation in all of its times is waiting for an event of glorious salvation which God alone will bring about, even as God alone brought about the universe in the first place. And it was a kind of big bang, but it kept on spreading out like a garment. The objective of all of our preaching then, and this has been an objective realized by the preachers in my absence, is that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom. And that includes men's interpretation of the scriptures without the Holy Spirit, but on God's power. Again, the object of all of our preaching is that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And I could say that the object of our teaching theologically teaching is that we would have an educated hope 
educated with the scriptures. I'm able to bring in hundreds more scriptures all at once by a turn to theology than I would by teaching a book verse by verse. I've chosen, I think, to do that. Again, 1 Corinthians 2.5, that our faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And God's power is his omnipotence married to his mercy. Arising from his infinite love. If you haven't heard, God is love. So closing, turn with me to Psalm 62, 11 and 12. I'm going to go 11 and 12a. The B part is very interesting. He gives to every man or every person according to his works. You know what that ultimately means? I'll give you a hint because I might teach on it down the road. He gives to every person in his justice and mercy according to every person's work and every person is what Jesus Christ became on the cross. He gives to every one of us according to the works of the man Christ Jesus. If you think about that, it might even comfort you a little bit. Psalm 62, 11, and 12, I've taken this from the Sir Lancelot Septuagint translation. It really is. The guy's name was Sir Lancelot C.L. Brenton. His parents must have had high expectations of him. Sir Lancelot, get over here. Read the Bible. Translate the Bible into the Septuagint Greek immediately. Sir Lancelot. Well, Sir Lancelot did it in 1844. But this actually captures what the... Original Septuagint translation says, he says, God has spoken once, and I've heard these two things. That's how it reads. The English translations don't get it. It says, God has spoken once, and I've heard this twice. But what it really says is, God has spoken once, and in his one speaking, I heard two things. Two, one, that power is of God, and that mercy is thine, O Lord. God has spoken once, and I heard two things in one breath from God. His power is from him. Power is of God. That means power is exclusively God's. And mercy is thine, O Lord. Mercy is yours, O Lord. The psalmist, and then the next verse I just explained, the next half of the verse. But the psalmist, we got something in common with this psalmist. The psalmist and you and I for the past few years have heard God speak in one breath about two things that cannot be separated and that really are one thing. God's omnipotent power and God's universal mercy. He has, after all, consigned all to disobedience in order to have mercy on all, Romans 11.32. He has judged each and every human being by the work of one man, Christ Jesus. Cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. So when Christ hung upon the tree, he did so as every man. In his death, 
He experienced election to rejection for every person. In his resurrection, he experienced election to glory as and for every single person. The answer to everything is Christ and him crucified. He was judged. He has judged each and every human being. God the Father has by the work of the man Christ Jesus who hung as every human being on the tree. Galatians 3.13. And arose as every human being from the dead. So we await. This is the life of hope. We await a universal homecoming. Brought about by the creator. Who calls all things into being. And gives life to the dead. He calls into being things that have no independent existence. And he raises the dead in sins. He raises the dead in sins. To death conquering life of the risen Christ. And he also. Raises the dead in graves. To eternal life. And to the judgment of justification. We await then in our interconnectedness with all things. In all people in all times. The universal apocalypse. Of the glory. Of God's grace. This is the life. Of hope. And Father, we pray that you will allow through the Holy Spirit in our believing of this message, in our believing that you've awakened, that you will allow us in Romans 15, 13 to experience the peace and joy in this believing. And that we will enjoy by the Holy Spirit's power alone the overflowing hope. By overflowing, we mean We have a mission that this hope will overflow us to others. True mission, true evangelism arises from the announcement of the already done reconciliation that results in people being reconciled and knowing it through faith being awakened. We pray, Father, and I commit myself I present my body to you for this next chapter in our history. I present my spirit to you. Into your hands I entrust my spirit. Into your care I present and to your service I present my body. That Christ might be magnified in my body. Whether by life or by death. And I present to you this congregation. And hand them to the word of your grace, which is able to build them up and to bring home to them an inheritance in the light of the word. May our generation be truly woke, not only to the things that we need to be awakened to, racial injustice and other things, true. We need to be woke to these things, but infinitely more important, we need to be woke to the universally saving significance of a crucified Lord of glory. May our expectations of apocalypse be not an apocalypse of destruction, though this evil age will certainly endure that. 
but may it be the expectation of an apocalypse of glory. And may I pray this to your glory, Father. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth, even as it is now perfectly done in heaven. Lead us not into temptation. Lead our children and our grandchildren not into temptation. Deliver them from evil and keep them from the cosmos. Keep them from the evil. We ask this in the name and pray this effectively in the power of the spirit in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you. You've been very attentive. Good to be back. And we'll continue Wednesday, Lord willing. I really know what that means now. (laughs) And I want to stay with Romans 8 until we finish it. Then the turn to theology. So thank you again for your attentiveness. Wonderful to see all of you. And go in peace.